0: Millions of Texans went without electricity, heat, and water for hours and sometimes for days over the past week. Half a million are still without utilities and 13 million people are under a water boil order for the near future. In the meantime, Texas energy companies are making big bucks. This week is like hitting the jackpot with some of these incredible prices according to Comstock Resources Incorporated CEO, Roland Burns. Comstock is owned by Dallas entrepreneur and sports team owner, Jerry Jones, poster boy for white male power privilege and position. Stock prices for energy companies have skyrocketed, while government officials blame each other for the clear failures in policy and preparation that resulted in four dozen deaths, huge physical suffering and likely billions in property damage. During the worst hours of the disaster, Colorado City, Texas mayor Tim Boyd took to the Facebook, to Facebook to make his feelings known in a since deleted post. Boyd declared that the government is not responsible for the welfare of people who are too lazy to take care of themselves. Socialist government and bad raising, according to Boyd, have conspired to produce the situation folks in Texas now face. All that was missing from Boyd's post was a quote from Ebenezer Scrooge that the foolish freezing folks should hurry up and die to reduce the surplus population. Later, Boyd issued an apology and announced his resignation, even though he composed the entire post and it was quoted in its entirety by news sources, he protested that it was, quote, taken out of context, unquote. He wished that he had chosen, quote, better wording, unquote, whatever that might be for such an arrogant and disgusting screed, and thought more clearly about his comments. He complains that he and his family have suffered from anger and harassment as a result of the post, and he concludes by noting that he is now a private citizen and should just be left alone. Finally, this past week we learned of the death of Rush Limbaugh from cancer at age 70. Limbaugh was the first to take full advantage of the Reagan cancellation of the Fairness Doctrine and to turn cable news into cable bullshit. I use that term in the way that Harry Frankfurt uses it in his little book called On Bullshit. Limbaugh raised the disregard of truth to a high art. He was one of the first to realize that truth is not even relevant in most current conversations. Provocation is power. Facts are a waste of time. Limbaugh was offensive, abusive, misogynist, racist, and fascist in his comments. Worst of all, he simply did it for the money, not for any principles. I am not dancing on Limbaugh's grave. I simply report what he himself said about himself on numerous occasions. The cavalcade of white male supremacy continues on, even if the marmalade misanthrope no longer occupies the White House or has his Twitter account. It's not a man, it's a system. It's a system that produces so much idiocy that I can't even get to the Ted Cruz to Cancun or the Terry Bumstead interview that continues to make me think that he has years of dementia already behind him. White male supremacy is an inexhaustible font of foolish hypocrisy and wealthy stupidity that would be hilarious if it didn't kill people by the thousands daily. As all this unfolds, I've been reading the book Native by Caitlin Curtis. It is, among other things, a poetic summary of the nature of whiteness, and thus a commentary on events every week, not just this week. So, for my own edification, I will share some of the necessary face slaps I have received while reading. What whiteness cannot enslave, whiteness erases. That is not a political or ideological or theological argument. It is rather an historical observation. This observation is for me, of course, more in the category of the privileged white male fish discovering the ocean of whiteness and maleness and privilege in which he's been swimming for a lifetime and more. I'm late to the game and will spend the rest of this life catching up. Quote, a thread runs through the history of America, Caitlin Curtis writes in Native. And I continue the quote, a thin line that connects people, places, moments, cultures, and experiences. This thread started when Columbus arrived and deemed indigenous peoples savage and unworthy of life. A thread that continued as African peoples were enslaved and forced onto this continent. We see it today in hate crimes against people of color and religious minorities. It is a threat of whiteness, of white supremacy that aims to erase culture, to assimilate those deemed unworthy of humanity." Close quote. As we see it in spoiled food, broken pipes, contaminated water, and the bodies of the homeless in the streets of Texas, We know that Curtis's words are true. Whiteness enslaved black people in order to crush the life out of them like grapes and sell the juice of their labor. When that was no longer the legal system, whiteness erased black people from the political process, from the accumulation of wealth, from quality housing, from good schools, from white churches, from our stories, and from the pages of the history white people teach, remember, and celebrate. Whiteness continues that process of erasure daily. Whiteness is a culture that requires the erasure of all others, Curtis continues later in her book, considering them less than. It is believing in that well-known metaphor of a melting pot that we so love to hold on to in America, but erasing the value of the lives as the other within the narrative, and in the process, presenting the idea of assimilation as virtue. But really, Curtis continues, assimilation is about power, power that puts shackles on black people, indigenous people, and other people of color. Whiteness has an ironic and contradictory relationship with all that is not white. On the one hand, whiteness removes all that which is not white and will not become white. On the other hand, whiteness needs the other as the, quote, inferior, unquote, in order to fund what James Baldwin called the white wage. That wage is basically I may not be much, but at least I'm better than someone. Domination, in the end, is a perverse dependency of whiteness on all that is not white. That perversity harms all but the most privileged of white people along with all others. Whiteness erases indigenous people from the land, from power, from their stories, from their cultures, and from life. Indigenous people were not seen as usable, so they were then seen as disposable. A continent was, quote, discovered, unquote. Land was seen as, quote, empty, unquote. Even if the first inhabitants had to be forcibly removed by genocide and by trails of terror and tears, Culture was cut off along with hair, and language was forgotten along with stories of oppression. The imperative was to clear out of the way, to assimilate to whiteness and or die. White people are portrayed as adventurers and explorers who, quote, discover a place for the first time. The land is, quote, uninhabited and needs to be, quote, developed. In fact, white people are colonizers of spaces that must be stolen before they can be possessed. The environment must be rendered friendly to capitalist exploitation and white male supremacy. That reformatting of the place is deadly for those who were there first. And it is highly profitable to those who continue to quote, own what lies under the stolen land in places like Texas. Land and plants and animals and people are commodities to be measured and mined, sliced and diced, packaged and sold. We lose the ability to see things clearly when colonization sets in, Curtis writes. We are clouded with dreams of economy and market value, and we forget that the land is still speaking, that the forgotten are still here, and that white supremacy does not have the last word she writes in Native. But while it speaks, people still suffer and die. This story is so familiar, so comfortable, and so well designed for the desires of white male supremacy that we who benefit most are privileged to believe and act as if the story describes some sort of reality with a capital R. We can tell ourselves stories about colonization and settling, about heroic pioneers and fantastic frontiers, about rugged individuals and bold entrepreneurs. In the telling, we don't notice, and don't want to notice, the people who suffer and die as a result, the communities that are devastated and and destroyed as a result, the planet that rebels at our irresponsibility as a result. I wish that my Christianity had been part of the solution over the last 500 years, but I know better. Settler, colonial Christianity is a religion that takes, that demeans the earth and the oppressed, and that holds people in these systems without regard for how Jesus treated people, notes Caitlin Curtis. So to be part of a colonized religion, I have to constantly ask, who am I following? she writes in native. As we prepare to read the text for the second Sunday in Lent about the cost of discipleship, that question faces us Christians with painful urgency. Who am I following? Jesus called the crowds with his disciples and said to them, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? That's Mark eight thirty-four to 37, NRSV. White male supremacy, using the tools of unfettered, individualistic, robber-baron capitalism, is always trying to find out what will profit us. In this Lenten season, we who desire to follow Jesus are actually challenged to try to find that path and see where the life really is.